Verse 1, chapter 26. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. And once again, God repeats this command. No idols, no symbols, no other gods before me. He will repeat this command numerous times through Old Testament scriptures. You will have no other gods before me, no idols. And you begin to wonder, is God threatened by the idols? I mean, he brings this up an awful lot. Is he concerned about it? Is he threatened by other religions? Rick, your little statement there about Islam and all that, is God threatened by that? No. Don't threaten him at all. He simply says that your idols will not stand. If you begin to trust in idols, they can't help you. If you begin to worship an idol, it will not be there for you when life gets hard. Psalm 115 verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. And feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. What does that mean? Will become like them. If I'm getting into idols, if I'm making idols, if I'm making idols out of things, what does that mean? I'll become like them. Well, he just describes... A reduction, a disappearance of every single one of the five senses. Those who worship the idols will, like the idols, become blind. They'll become deaf, insensitive, lame, speechless. All the senses will ultimately become dead and lifeless. And God wants in our lives to nurture growth and life. He wants us to live and to thrive, which is why going on in verses 2 through 13, he's going to give you seven sweet peas for your garden. I like this. Seven sweet peas. If you want to jot these down quickly, I'll go through them. Seven peas for the garden that God would cultivate in your life, in your heart. Verse 2, he says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then... I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. The first sweet pea is sweet productivity. Sweet productivity. If you will trust in me, if you will follow my word, your produce and your fruit will flourish. And he's not just talking farming day. The things that I do for the Lord, my produce, the fruit of my life in Jesus, it's going to flourish if I'll trust in Him, if I'll listen to Him, if I'll spend time in His Word. Sweet productivity. Verse 5 going on says, Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. The second sweet pea is sweet prosperity. Productivity, uh, prosperity. Number three, he says, I shall also grant you sweet peace. Peace in the land, so that you may lie down and no one will make you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. Sweet peace, number three. Number four, he goes on and says, But you, how you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. By the way, that's played out practically 
in the Old Testament. When we get to the story of Gideon and his little band of 300 men routes thousands. It's wonderful. God says it here and He does it there. And you will see that over and over as we continue on in His Word. And in verse 9 He says, I will turn towards you. Oh wait, before we get to verse 9, number 4, sweet P number 4 is sweet power. You trust in me and you trust in my word. I will give you power and your enemies will run from before you. By the way, what is it that he says will, the enemies will fall by? What will the enemies fall by? The sword. What is the sword? The sword is the word of God. How do you deal with an enemy in your life? They'll fall by the sword. You stick to the word. You live in the word. You let the word be your sword. And God says the enemy he will fall by the sword. Ephesians 6.17, Hebrews 4.12, Revelation 19.15, all describing the Bible as the sword, the word of God. Number five in verse nine. It says, I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. Sweet pea number five is promise. I will give you my promise. I will follow through in my covenant. Verse 10, you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. I like that. Number six, provision. Provision. You're going to eat the old supply and clear it out because the new. In other words, the new's coming in. You can't even finish the old before the new gets there. The old and the new, which is what we're doing right now. We're studying the old and the new keeps coming in, doesn't it? The more we study the old, the more we understand the new. The more time we spend in the old, the more we find ourselves shot up ahead to the new. We can't get done with the old before the new keeps coming in. I'm speaking, of course, of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the way God provides for us in fantastic ways. Sweet provision. And then we get to number seven. Of all the sweet peas, this one is the best. Verse 11. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. God promises His presence. His presence. Where you are, I will be there among you. But gang, these sweet peas require cultivation. Their growth is conditional. Look back at verse 2. He says, You shall keep my Sabbath and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I'm going to cultivate this in the garden of your life. I'm going to create these things in you. I'm going to bring them about. He says, I want you to keep my Sabbath and I want you to revere my sanctuary. In other words, if you want this garden to grow, if you want the productivity and prosperity and peace and power and promise and provision and presence of the Lord, all of these things, if you want to see them grow, they will grow best when nurtured with rest, as in the Sabbath, and when watered, when watered with worship, as in revering the sanctuary. Through rest and through worship, the Lord says, and through the Word. I will grow these things in you. However, however, God says if the people disregard the garden and if they disobey me, I declare a devastating consequence. Two things. First, he says the people will be consumed. Verse 14. He says, if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, 
I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Interesting terror. What is the one thing that Israel and the world is most concerned about today is terror. It's terror. He said, if you sow your seed useless, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. Verse 17, he says, I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, listen to this, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. In the same way that the land won't yield the fruit, your lives won't yield the fruit if you're not walking with me. He goes on and says, verse 21, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you again, he says, a second time, seven times according to your sins. Now in verse 23 he says, If by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. Down in verse 27 he says, Yet in spite of this, if you do not obey me. See, during all these things he keeps laying out punishment. These are the things I'm going to do. This is the destruction that will come upon you. But if you will turn, it will stop. But he says, but if you continue not to stop, if you continue to act with hostility against me, verse 27, then verse 28, I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you, here we go again, seven times for your sins. Furthermore, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. Prophetic, because Israel did. When they were under siege against great enemies, they ate of the flesh of their sons and their daughters. I then, verse 30, will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. And that's the ultimate thing. You will become like the dead idols you worship. I will heap your bodies on top, your dead bodies on top of the dead idols that you worship if you choose them, if you follow after them. Man, this is heavy stuff. Verse 31, I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas. In other words, I will not recognize your sacrifices of incense. God gave them two choices. One was fantastic, one was frightening, one was wonderful, the other one, woeful. And the choice against God, gang, is always a choice of things bad. He's trying to lay out that principle early on with Israel. You can choose to be with me and life will be better and, and things will go well. Oh, not perfect, but anything happens, even the bad things, I will cause to be good ultimately for you. But if you choose to go against me, the result will be cataclysmic. The contrast God makes absolutely crystal clear. Do as I say and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be distressed. That's the deal. Trust me, obey me, and you will have it good. Disobey me and it will go badly for you. And we saw here four times the same repeated phrase, I will punish you. I will punish you. If you don't turn, I will punish you 
seven times for your sins. Seven times. Interesting. What punishment involves a time span of seven? The tribulation. That time the Bible declares that will come for Israel. A seven year span of time that is a time of God pouring out His wrath on a Christ rejecting world. That wrath as He pours it out, not only is it because of the rejection of Christ in the world, but it's also to get a hold of the Jews. It's that one last ditch effort of God to say, Israel, turn around. I've said this before, it's almost like he will return to Old Testament style discipline for the people of Israel. And they will turn around and go, is that you, Dad? <laughs> They'll remember. They'll know that discipline and at least a third of Israel will be saved. God says, basically, you will be consumed. You will be consumed if you don't follow me. Second thing he says is the people will be cast out. Not only will you be consumed, you'll be cast out. Verse 32, he says, I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it, which is exactly what happened to what was called Palestine for so many years. It became an absolutely desolate place. Mark Twain visited it one time. And when he saw it, he said, who would even care about this God-forsaken country? Why would anybody want this land so desolate, so deserted, so infected? And yet even today, Israel has made a tremendous turnaround. My wife and I are actually looking forward to going there. Back in the time of Mark Twain, he said, why would anybody want to be in this place, this desolate land where the Jewish people had been cast out? Going on, he says, the land will enjoy its Sabbath, verse 34. All the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and will enjoy its Sabbaths. All the day of its desolation, it will observe a rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. And as for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. Even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword. Interesting. An awful lot of people in the world who are running from the sword. People who are running from the word, which is what they need to survive. They will run as though running from the sword is, although no one is pursuing, then you'll have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemy's land will consume you as we watch Israel getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it goes on and says, verse 39, So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. The people will be cast out. But listen, listen, because there is love in this. There is grace in this. It would be nothing but unloving if God never said a word about this and just let it happen to Israel. That would be unloving. But the grace of God is so great, His love so big, that the most loving thing a person can do is warn, I'm telling you ahead of time what will happen, but it doesn't have to happen. And gang, this is why Jesus spoke so often of hell. 
This is why he brought it up. This is why in the New Testament Jesus mentioned hell more times than he mentioned heaven. It's an act of love. I don't want you to go there. So let me be absolutely clear what the consequence is of rejection. Let's make sure you know ahead of time so you can make the right choice. Love gang demands a warning. True love is never looking the other way or accepting that which condemns. That's not love. That's not love. Love will warn of what is coming. Now before the words of judgment even have time to settle, the Lord moves on to the real point, which is His great desire. We said the people will be consumed, the people will be cast out. Thirdly, the people will be led to confession. Verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, if they'll confess this, verse 41, I was also acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they will make, then make amends for their iniquities. Then, verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember their land. Thirdly, the people will be led to confession. And fourthly, God says, finally, and I'll remember my covenant. Here's the plan, gang. You're going to be consumed if you reject me. You will be cast out. But if you turn to me, guess what I'll do? If you come to me in confession, I will remember my covenant. But this is great. He's not saying, I will remember my covenant that I made with you through Moses. That's not what he's saying. Look at that. He says, verse 42, I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. My covenant with Isaac. My covenant with Abraham. What's the difference? The Mosaic covenant was conditional. God says, I'm going to forget the conditional covenant, the if-then covenant. If you do this, then I'll do that. He says, you messed that up. What you're going to, Israel, I will, if you confess, remember my covenant that precedes that, my unconditional covenant that says, I'm going to restore you to the land because of my name, not because of what you do. I will restore you. My unconditional covenant. Going on, verse 42, he says, I'll remember these covenants. Verse 43, For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbath while, they, while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, I've got this whole thing underlined and highlighted, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the ordinances and the laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. This is great. I'm making a covenant with you. You keep it, and I'll take care of you. You break it, you're going to be cast out, but I'm still going to keep my covenant that precedes it and I will still look after you and I will still take care of you and I will still restore you even if you turn away amazing that's why the Abrahamic covenant preceded the Mosaic covenant it wasn't just a timeline issue God set forth in his first covenant an unconditional one that would overshadow and supersede the conditional one that would later come and so he made that covenant with Abraham unconditional. Do you remember the scene? It was Genesis chapter 15. Tell us the story. 
Abraham is called by the Lord. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I want you to show up at this special place. I want you to get a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And Abraham, I want you to wait for the plane. And <laughs> this is a challenge tonight, i got to tell you. I want you to take these animals that I've told you to bring and I want you to divide them, cut them in half and lay the pieces opposite each other and get ready. Now this was the old way they used to do covenants. You take an animal, sacrifice it, divide it and both parties in the covenant would walk through together. Basically saying, this is what's going to happen to you if you break the covenant. God said, I want you to lay this out. So Abraham does. He gets it all ready. It's actually Abram at the time. Gets it all set. And then before Abram can walk through making the covenant conditional on him he falls into a deep sleep and a terrible dread comes upon him as he's sleeping and the Lord as Abram is sleeping there interesting as Abram is resting God passes through the pieces Abram never does and God sets up this covenant for all time with Israel saying Abram for your people and all of your descendants My covenant is unconditional. You didn't have anything to do with it. It's all on me. Amazing. Now, well, let's see. All right, I'm going to give you the option. We can finish, and I can do it pretty fast, or we can wait one more week and do the last chapter. I'm seeing some. Okay, if you want to finish, raise your hand. Some are not sure. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. The majority has it. I'm going to finish. <laughs> Hang with me. There's just a few more things here, and we will be done. We'll be done real quickly here. One more chapter. I know it sounds like impossible, but we'll move quick. Okay, here we go. Do you need to stand up or anything? You want some coffee? Here we go. I should just tell myself, Rick, you can't do it. As God finishes out these last few laws, remember this. He understands something and He's important. He understands our weaknesses. He understands what our hearts are like. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to each and I even give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I understand your heart. I know your heart. But thank the Lord for Jesus about whom it is said in John 2.25 he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man why is that important? because Jesus didn't just die in spite of my sin he died in light of my sin he didn't die hoping I might get my act together he died knowing I couldn't and so understanding the weakness of our heart let me ask this question how many people have broken a promise? Let's show of hands. Anybody not break? Okay, Steve. Oh, you did too, Steve. Okay. <laughs> That's what this next section about is keeping a promise. Verse one, twenty-seven. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them: When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord." If your valuation is of the male from, 60, uh, from 20 to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. 
If, it's, if it be from 5 years to 20 years old, then your valuation of the male shall be 20 shekels, and for the female, 10 shekels. But if they are from a mouth even up to 5, oh, a month, sorry, if they're a month to 5 years old, then your valuation shall be 5 shekels of silver for the male, and for the female, your valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward, if it's a male, your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and the female, 10 shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest, and the priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed the priest shall value him. What in the world does that mean? What's, what's that about? Well, the answer is, what's a difficult vow? He starts off, for anyone who makes a difficult vow, you value the person in these different ways. And he goes down and he lists that. Males 20 to 60, it's 50 shekels. A female 20 to 60, it's 30 shekels. And on down. What's this about? The difficult vow, that word difficult is the word pala. Pala in the Hebrew means wonderful, distinctive, or separate. What this is talking about is the person who makes a special vow to the Lord who separates themselves, who says, Lord, I'm going to serve you all my life. We're not talking about a Levite, a priest. We're talking about someone who says, I just want to serve with the Levite. I want to serve around the sanctuary. I'm going to give my life to you. And so my life, Lord, it's yours. Take me. And then this 20-year-old male who makes this commitment, this difficult vow, sees a young girl and falls headlong in love and goes, I can't keep my vow to the Lord because I want to make a vow to her. I, got, I can't keep this difficult vow. It, it was too much for me. Or a man makes a vow to the Lord and realizes he can't afford it. He has to be with his family. And so the Lord created here a way for someone to get out of their difficult vow. The vow that was too hard. When they commit themselves. And God, by the way, attaches a monetary value to their vow. The monetary value, listen to this, is not for the person. It's not how much a person is worth. Actually, I've heard if you break down all the molecules and everything in the body, all the chemicals, the elements come to what, like about 11 bucks? Is that right? That we're actually worth on the, on the market today. So I would encourage you to keep your body together and not break it down for extra cash. You won't get much for it. But if a person says, I'm going to commit myself to the Lord, and they become either unable or unwilling or possibly unneeded, they could pay this valuation and redeem themselves. They can buy themselves out of the difficult vow. Why? Because God knows the heart of man. He knows we make promises we don't intend to keep. He knows we can't keep it. He knows that we break them all the time. And so he says, all right, I want, I, wonderful that you're making this difficult vow. But here's the back door. Here's the way out. You pay this, you're out. Verse 9, he goes on. He says, now if it's an animal of the kind which men can present as an offering to the Lord. Any such that one gives to the Lord shall be holy. Verse 10, he shall not replace it or exchange it, a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. Or if he does exchange another animal for an animal, then both it and its substitute become holy. God says they both become mine so now listen if you make a vow a vow of beast but you change your mind say okay I'm going to sacrifice this animal to the Lord and all the rest of your flock dies and he's the last one and you need the milk you know, okay, I can't do this so um, Lord I need to get out of this he gives a way out in verse 13 he says you can redeem it for full price plus 20% for a beast. If you give a house, dedicate your house to the Lord, verses 14 through 15, or a field, verses 16 through 25, same thing. You can redeem them, you can buy them back from the Lord, but you buy them back paying full price plus 20%. Why the 20%? 
Because God wants you to understand something. He wants the Israelites to understand vows are serious business. Now I know you're going to break vows, so I'm going to give you a way out. But I'm not going to give you an easy way out. I want you to understand if you make a difficult vow, if you commit something to the Lord, I want you to follow through. I want you to do what you've committed to do. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2 says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Ecclesiastes 5.5, he says, It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Watch your vows. Don't get overly... Man, in all the years that Cheryl and I were involved in youth ministry, we saw so many kids make ultimate lifelong vows, and a week later they were back to the old thing. Kids who said, I am committing myself to full-time ministry for my whole life, and now they work in casinos. Such was my youth ministry. Anyway, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus put it this way. He said, you've heard it said to the ancients, you've heard that they were told, you shall not make false vows. He's referring to Leviticus 27. You shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say, Jesus said, don't make any oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I've also discovered you cannot make one hair remain. But he goes on and says, nor shall you make an oath. He says, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. What are you saying, Jesus? I know your heart. I know your mind. And I know you're going to say things, and you're not going to mean them, so just don't say them. Just be simple in your speech, in the things that you say. Now, some things are unredeemable. Verse 26, skipping down, tells us how close to the end we are. Verse 26, however, a firstborn among animals, which, is, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may consecrate it, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. But if it is among the unclean animals, he shall then redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it, that's 20%. And if it's not redeemed, then it shall be sold accordingly to your valuation. The firstlings, firstborn, cannot be bought back. The firstborn of all animals belonging to the Israelites belong to the Lord. You cannot buy it back. In the same way, the firstborn child of a mother and father Israelite cannot be well the firstborn child actually can be redeemed can't they it's the only way it's the only thing that was that was firstborn that could be redeemed but the animals could not be he goes on in verse 28 he says nevertheless anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has of man or animal or of the fields of his property shall not be sold or redeemed anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord so the firstlings cannot be bought back because they already belong to God the devoted thing cannot be redeemed this Hebrew word is interesting devoted to destruction is the phrase there in verse 28 it's one word it's kerem kerem which literally means doomed the doomed thing cannot be redeemed cannot be bought back does not belong to you what does that mean? well this exact law was violated in Israel's first war exactly what God says cannot be done happened when Israel, Joshua chapter 7, went up against Jericho, that great battle, that fantastic, that fantastic war in which Israel basically did nothing. They just marched around the city and blew trumpets and boom, the walls fell and they took it. God did his work. But God says, this is devoted to destruction. 
Jericho is devoted to destruction. You cannot take any of the spoils, any of the animals, any of the people as slaves. Everything is to be destroyed. It is devoted to destruction. Do you remember what happened in that story? A man by the name of Achan. After God brought the house down, after the war was won, Achan grabbed a few of the things devoted to destruction, buried them under his tent, and didn't say anything about it. And in the next battle, Israel fell. And they found out there was, and it's a famous phrase, there was sin in the camp. And the sin was the sin of Achan. It's where the song actually came from, my Achan breaking heart. It was actually written back then. something to help you stay awake but Achan had, and he ended up he and his family ended up having to be killed for the violation of this sin that's what that's talking about something that the Lord says is devoted to destruction you may not buy it back verse 29 no one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed he shall surely be put to death in other words a person sentenced to die cannot be redeemed now think about this December 13, 2005, just this last month, Stanley Tookie Williams, you saw it on the news. The founder of the Crips gang in L.A., Tookie murdered four people back in 1979, including shooting an innocent store clerk in the back. According to Leviticus 27, verse 29, no one sentenced to death could be ransomed or bought out of this penalty. If someone in Israel received the death penalty... If they committed a sin worthy of death, regardless of how repentant they were, they could not be redeemed. They could not be brought back out of it. The punishment would stand. Now, hear me on this. It doesn't mean they can't be saved eternally. It means they can't be saved temporally. It means they can't be saved in this life. So you're saying, wait a minute, Rick. If someone commits a murder and becomes a Christian in prison, they should still get the death penalty? Do you remember, and I forget her name, there was a woman who was in prison recently, within the last couple of years, and I forget her name, but she was on death row and she was about to be executed, and she became a Christian, and there were a lot of Christian people who were lobbying, don't put her to death, don't put her to death. You know what God's standard was? If the punishment is worthy of death, Whether the person becomes a person of faith or not is beside the point. The punishment stands. At least it did for Israel. The punishment stands. That doesn't mean the salvation isn't there. And that doesn't mean, by the way, this woman who became a woman of faith, who I believe was truly a Christian, it doesn't mean that she's not saved. But it does mean that the penalty for the sin had to be paid. Now I understand something here. I understand the death penalty remains highly controversial, even in Christian circles. But I will remind you and just point you back to the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9-6. And you can compare that, Genesis 9-6, with Romans 13, 1-5. Compare the two, look at the two. But God placed such a high value on human life that he says if a human takes another human's life, their life is forfeit. And he gave that, by the way, not to Israel, Not through the Mosaic Covenant, but to all mankind in the Noahic Covenant, the death penalty was instituted by God. It was given by Him. I'll let you to ponder that, chew on it, think it through. Last thing here. When you're unsure, especially about something as controversial as the death penalty or anything else, if you're unsure about some issue, some burning problem in the world or in your life, if you're unsure, go to the Word and just trust in the Lord. You may have a difficult time with it anyway. I did 
when I first studied the Noahic Covenant and realized what God was saying and looked at this whole uh, concept of the death penalty, it was hard. It's still difficult for me. But base what you believe, base what you do on the Word. If you're unsure, go there. Even if you disagree, at least you can say, well, it's God's Word. It's what He says. I don't understand it. I don't get it right now. I will then. But for now, I don't have to understand it. I just have to believe it. I just have to trust Him. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Verse 30. Verse 30. Thus all the tithes of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And therefore a man wishes to redeem a part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth. In other words, if you want to get your tithe back, it's going to cost you 20%. Think about that. <laughs> 10% going to cost you 20% to get it back. Best just to leave it where it is. <laughs> For every tenth part, verse 32, of a herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, and that was their way of measuring the, the flock, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. That's the tithe. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. In other words, you give a beast to the Lord and say, this is part of my tithe. Oh, no, no. no I don't, instead of that one, I'm going to give this one. The Lord goes, great, I'll take them both. <laughs> I'll just leave the first one. You know, let it lie. <laughs> Verse 33, he says, he shall not be concerned whether it's good or bad or exchange it. It shall not be redeemed. Verse 34, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded me. Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai and thus concludes the book of Leviticus. Now listen. One last thing. And thank you for your patience tonight. I really appreciate it. I wouldn't have written chapter 27 and placed it where it is. I wouldn't have done it. I read through this and I think, Lord, you had such a great opportunity with chapter 25 and the Jubilee. End it there. Boom, go out with a bang. The continuous blast. That's where to end Leviticus. Stick chapter 27, I don't know, long about like 17 or 18 or 19, back there. Tuck it in where we got through it, you know. But all these valuations and, and, this, and this stuff about tithing. I would have ended at least with the major feasts of Israel, with the celebrations. Why does the Lord end the book this way? And I think this is significant. Why would he end the book this way? Andrew Bonar, in his commentary on Leviticus, wrote the following. He said, Thus we have come to the close of our pleasant undertaking. We have traversed the tabernacle courts, inquiring into its meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances opposed on them until the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9.10. Had we looked on them apart from what they signified, we must have grown weary ere we had all well begun. In other words, man, if we just took this at face value, Leviticus, you're studying Leviticus? That's a tough one. But he goes on and he says, but searching into their meaning, we have found that these earthly ordinances, i.e. these ceremonies that consisted in the use of earthly and material things, are all fragrant with gospel truth. They're fragrant with gospel truth. That being the case, what is the fragrant gospel truth found in these valuations and monetary redemptions? Why end with chapter 27? Simply this. In light of the theme of holiness that runs throughout the book of Leviticus, there is a clear sub-theme, and that is this. Holiness comes at a cost. Holiness comes 
at a high cost. Abram couldn't afford the covenant God made with him. So the Lord alone walked through the pieces of sacrifice. The Israelites could not afford the covenant made through Moses, but God promised even so He would make a way. And you and I cannot afford the gift of God's grace unto eternal life. And so Jesus, like God, through the pieces of sacrifice with Abraham, Jesus walked alone the road to Calvary. He alone bore that shame, paid that humiliation, bore the beatings, the lashings, the nails and the thorns, all things that belonged to me and were earned and deserved by me. Jesus paid the price alone. Holiness comes at a high price, a high cost. There was a bumper sticker a few years ago I really liked. I think most pastors probably would like it. It said, Tithe if you love Jesus, any idiot can honk. Isn't that great? <laughs> Gang, the Lord ends the book of Leviticus talking about valuations and the tithe because it demands, it focuses, it returns us to that place. Man, you cannot afford it. There is a high cost in being holy. But the gospel message that resonates loud and clear are in the words of the old hymn. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we close this book thanking You. Thanking You for the high cost that You paid. Thanking You, Lord, that You bestow upon us that which we do not deserve, have not earned, cannot afford. The holiness, the separateness, the distinctiveness of a child of God. Lord, if we forget everything else looked at tonight, we move so fast and covered so much ground, but Father, if we forget all the rest, help us to remember you paid the price that we couldn't pay. And may we walk and exult in that, rejoice in it, and enter into rest because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.